This morning, we are going to talk about technology. But there's a diff difficulty in talking about technology. There's a difficulty in talking about technology to a large group of mixed ages, in that your relationship with technology changes with when you were born. You see, they call me a millennial. But I've never really felt at home with that descriptor. I prefer to say that I am a part of the Oregon Trail generation. This is an idea that I stole from an article I read on Facebook a while back that described folks like me who grew up with technology, but not like our peers who are about four to five years older than me. See, my first experience with technology was not a home computer or a number of computers in my classroom. It was going to a place called a computer lab and putting in a floppy disk. Yes, I know what that emoji is. <laughs> and we would play a version of the Oregon Trail that had horrendous graphics. And you could go out on a hunt, but you could only shoot in one of the four cardinal directions. The Oregon Trail generation. So for me and my peers, technology was something that has always existed but we first learned that they were things you went to a place to access for a particular purpose. Just like you would go to music class, where the musical instruments were stored, and you would play them there. We would have computer lab time, where we would go to a place where computers were stored, and we would use them. That is radically different from children who first encounter technology as a regular part of their home classroom or a regular part of their home life. The internet came to my house when I was in eighth grade. I know what dot matrix printers are, though I still don't know what to do with the things you tear away. All of this brings us meanderingly to our introductory point. How we first interact with technology shapes and forms how we view technology for much of our lives. For those that didn't grow up with technology, with computers and screens constantly existing. The disposition towards technology is something foreign that needs to be learned. Our children that are growing up with technology, with handheld screens as a part of everyday life, have vastly different attitudes towards new technology. The studies and literature written on digital immigrants versus digital natives could have its own section in libraries. These varying attitudes and basic dispositions towards technology, as well as the speed by which the digital world changes, have left me wondering whether or not we have exchanged wisdom for knowledge. With a smartphone, you can have access to all the information you could ever need. Every six months, I'm going to put this away because my case broke. Every six months, there's a new app or program to master for our jobs. And yet, do we have the wisdom to discern how best to engage with the digital world? Do we have the wisdom to discern how best to introduce our children to this world? When Christians seek wisdom, we often turn to Scripture. But the authors of scripture could not have imagined smartphones or tablets. 
Well, at least not what we mean by tablets. They had their own. Haha, <laughs> yeah, that was. So reading scripture for explicit teaching and direction on when to let your child have a cell phone might leave you disappointed. And we are left wondering how Christians ought to use technology. Scripture, however, does provide us the tools we need to gain the wisdom needed to confront this increasingly daunting challenge of the digital age. To do this, we will need to look at principles that govern the Bible and imagine how they could apply to the world of technology. And we will make use of Andy Crouch, uh, the work Andy Crouch has done in his new book, The TechWise Family, which normally I would hold up to you and do a little product placement, um, but I left it in the church van. So if at the end of this sermon you are really interested in this book, uh, I will have it outside as we eat hamburgers and hot dogs. Just come find me. It's, it's little, it's relatively short, it's wonderful. Uh, I was saying we're going to get to his commandment. Every chapter could have been a sermon. Um, I've tried my best to keep it to like only three. Um, but first, let's chart our course through scripture. And we're going to start in the very beginning to when God created the heavens and the earth. Because technology at its heart is pure creation. To gain wisdom, we need to look at how God interacted with creation and how God himself created. In the first chapter of Genesis, we get a particular story about how God created the heavens and the earth. And there's this rhythm that we see each day. God creates light and then separates the light from the darkness. God creates a firmament in order to separate the waters above from the waters below. God separates the water to allow land to appear. God creates lights in the sky to separate night from day. In the early days of creation, God creates and separates. Light has its proper place, as does darkness. Waters above have their proper place, as do waters below. Land has its proper place, as does sea. Day has its proper place, as does night. The lesson we learn from this is that all things have their proper place. And it is with this axiom that Crouch begins his book. And it follows that if all things have a proper place, there is a proper place for technology. Which also means there are places where technology is not meant to be. But that itself is anathema to what we hear about technology from the companies that sell us technology. When the smartphone first came out, it was this beautiful, miraculous device that would allow you to do all the things all the time. You can take email, the internet, Word documents, spreadsheets, everything with you wherever you go, fantasy football. Instead of letting email pile up over the weekend or overnight, you can keep tabs on it when you're at home. You didn't get all that data entry done during the day? No problem. Put the spreadsheet on the cloud and access it from your smartphone at home. One cell phone company even went so far as to use as their tagline, get more done. That's pretty simple. And we have bought this mantra and have let technology become as central to our lives as breathing. Parents of teenagers, can you imagine a bigger family crisis 
than the home Wi-Fi going out. This has left us disconnected. If you're available all the time to your coworkers and to your job, you're never fully present to your family. We are digitally connected to thousands of people at all times, but that digital connection takes us further and further away from the people with whom we are supposed to have the greatest connection. For instance, my wife used to coach track. And in her tenure as a coach, she saw how technology was changing how her team bonded. The varsity team would take a couple overnight out-of-state trips per year. And in her first years of coaching, the trips up to New York City or to Yale was a huge bonding time as teammates talked to one another, decided on the communal music together, etc. In her last years of coaching, these long car trips were reduced to a van full of students, each with their own set of earbuds, listening to their own music, not saying a word to each other. The only place of bonding on those trips became the charging stations at the track meets. If this is happening on a high school track team, what is happening in our families? The antidote for all this comes from putting technology in its proper place and comes from looking at what God does once he has finished creating, once he has finished acquiring all his technology, if you will. In the end of Genesis 1, we see this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. Didn't say vegetables. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. We're going to work backwards a little bit. Because we see at the end of this text that God had finished doing God's work of creation. And instead of continuing to create, instead of continuing to make more and more, do more and more, instead of getting more done, God rests. God takes a day. God takes time to rest from God's labors. Why this is important to us is found at the start of the text. We are created in the image of God. We are created to rule over creation, to use creation, and to create ourselves. There's a special feature in humans that allows for the type of discovery that can turn the electron into an electrical grid, that can turn the magnetic forces found in nature into a metro rail. 
and then ruin the metro rail. We have this creative potential, and I think that stems from the image of God within us. But if we have this creative potential because of the image of God within us, we need to take our cues from God as to the responsible way to use this. And the responsible way to use this is to balance work and rest. The responsible way is to take Sabbath. The responsible way is to see the proper place of each thing and be intentional about keeping things in their proper place. In his book, Crouch highlights these basic biblical principles and then puts forward 10 commitments that the TechWise family will make. Here's the whole list, and then we're going to go through them one by one. The 10 commitments of a TechWise family. Don't feel like you have to write them down now. Um, They will go up on our blog this week, and if you are on Brenda's parent email list, they will be going out to you in an email. So if you would like to like print them and put them on your refrigerator or something, you can get them in, or you can buy the book, but you don't have to. Um, I'm, I get no royalties from this book. <laughs> the 10 commitments of a TechWise family. We develop wisdom and courage together as a family. Two, we create We want to create more than we consume. So we fill the center of our home with things that reward skill and active engagement. I'm going to move out of the way so y'all can read if you're interested. Number three, we are designed for a rhythm of work and rest. So one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we turn off our devices and worship, feast, play, and rest together. Number four, we wake up before our devices do and we go to bed and they go to bed before we do. Number five, we aim for no screens before double digits at school and at home. Number six, we use screens for a purpose and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. Seven, car time is conversation time. Eight, Spouses have one another's passwords, and parents have total access to children's devices. I was looking at the teenagers as I read that one. Number nine, we learn to sing together rather than let recorded and amplified music take over our lives and worship. And number 10, we show up in person for the big events of life. We learn how to be human by being fully present at our moments of greatest vulnerability. We hope to die in one another's arms. So I found, I read the book. Um, I found these commitments and the vision of family life that they present to be incredibly beautiful and desirable. Before we go any further, I will admit that I am not there. So I read this, I I, I preach this to you as someone who finds what he is talking about, the vision he puts forth desirable, and as one who wants my family to be a little bit more like that. We're not going to be all the way, and certainly we've missed the boat on a couple things that we'll talk about. Um, But if I can do one or two of these things a little bit better, I think it'll make a difference for my family. So I submit these to you humbly. The first commitment is we develop wisdom and courage together as a family. 
This is the hinge on which Crouch's argument turns. This is the most philosophical of Crouch's commitments, but it's also perhaps the most important. Because what will follow will be hard, countercultural, intentional choices his family has made and recommends your family make in the use of technology. And in order to get on board with all of those countercultural choices, and potentially the complaining from children that will follow, you need to be on board with why you are making these choices. And you're making these choices because of this commitment. We want to develop wisdom and courage together as a family. How this relates to technology is pretty simple. Technology disconnects us from those physically closest to us. Right now, instead of listening to me, you could be interacting with thousands of people on social media. Instead of being physically in a worship service, you can listen to Christian music on Spotify and sermons on podcasts delivered by preachers far better and wiser than I am. Technology allows us to replace physical connections with digital ones. But digital connections are mere facsimiles of real embodied human relationships. When it comes to our families, we can seemingly replace the connection and relationship we are meant to have with our parents, our siblings, and our children with others. Our kids can reach out to their friends for advice 24-7 instead of learning virtues from their parents. And what's more, technology has replaced a number of skills and arts children used to see their parents have mastery in and perform. I'm not going to lie, oftentimes my work looks a lot like a high school kid's homework, typing into a computer. Now what I'm doing at the computer is vastly different from what the high school kid will be doing, but the, same func but the functionality is the same. How much of our work is done at a computer all the time? Meals can be prepared by taps on an app or by putting something frozen into the microwave. Crouch writes, one of the most damaging results of technology is that children never see their parents acting with wisdom and courage in the, wor in the world of work. When the art of cooking is replaced by meals warmed up in a microwave, something a five-year-old can do as well as a 55-year-old, then children no longer see their mothers and fathers doing something challenging, fruitful, admirable, and ultimately enjoyable. Instead, the family life together is reduced to mere consumption purchasing the result the resulted of others work or toil end quote the antidote to that is to intentionally develop wisdom and courage as a family but that requires making other intentional choices as it pertains to technology which brings us to we want to create more than we consume so we fill the center of our home with things that reward skill and active engagement the way that we orient space can make it easier or more difficult to make the good choices we want to make. Crouch argues that if we have a TV in our main room, more often than not, we will use it. The things that are around us most of the time are the things that get the most use. So if you want to develop wisdom and character, if you want to have a family based on real connection, Surround the spaces that you spend the bulk of your time in with things that foster real connection. Books, puzzles, games, arts and crafts. Push the screens to the edges where you have to make an intentional choice and exert real effort to use them. 
Third commitment, we are designed for a rhythm of work and rest. So one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we turn off our devices and worship, feast, play, and rest together. We talked about this earlier. We are called to periods of Sabbath rest and renewal, just as God engaged in Sabbath rest and renewal. How we orient our time reveals and reinforces what we value. If you intentionally put the screens away for an hour to have dinner with your family, it reveals and reinforces that your highest value is your family. If one day a week you can go without screens, you'll find that one day is full of connection and conversation, creativity and wonder. True confession. Who here has gone on vacation only to check email while on vacation and have your vacation ruined by that one email you never should have looked at in the first place? Take ownership over your time rather than letting time have ownership over you. Put the devices away and truly rest for an hour a day. Oh, sorry, for an hour, for a day, and for a week in God's gift of creation and relationships. Number four, we wake up before our devices do and they go to bed before we do. This begins the incredibly practical commitments. We need rest. We need to sleep. I have a 10 month old. I haven't slept in 10 months. We need sleep. And yet our devices are designed to captivate us and keep our attention. If we are truly going to rest, if we are truly going to sleep, we have to intentionally take a break from our devices. So Crouch recommends putting your devices to bed in a place that is not where you go to bed so that the last things you do in the evening and the first things you do in the morning and what's in between can be technology free. This is especially important for children and for teens who can and will be up all night on their devices choosing entertainment and digital connection over rest. And that's not a judgment on anyone else other than who I was when I was a teenager. We aim for no screens before double digits at school and at home. The Crouch family didn't buy a TV until their youngest daughter was 10. That's not a choice my family has made. We have missed the boat on that. And I don't know if it's one we would have made. I really like my TV. But the overall point, and it's one that I've learned in my brief time as a parent, is that technology is a lot like toothpaste in that you can't get it back in the tube. Once you introduce technology to your children, it's much harder to take it away. Introducing technology can be something we do without much reflection, but it, I think it ought to be as thoughtful a choice as when we introduce solid foods. So if you, before, you know, if you do give screens before double digits, think about what you're doing. We use screens for a purpose and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. This one is fairly straightforward. Especially with children, if you're going to introduce and use technology, do it in a way that invites relationship with you rather than in a way that disconnects from you. 
Oftentimes, we give technology to our children so that we adults can have some peace and quiet. I am the man. I'm guilty of that. But if we want the family to be a place where we develop courage and character together, technology has to be a part of that bonding together. Car time is conversation time. Another one that's straightforward, but it's designed to turn a space where technology can distance us from one another to a space where we are connecting with one another. How many times do you pass a car on the road that has children in the back seat watching a DVD or is chocked full of teens in the back seat glued to their phones? <laughs> Think about the relationship and connection and bonds that can be formed if every time you went for a drive, you had a conversation together as a family. Having read the book, this is the commitment that I am becoming more intentional about in my own life. Spouses have one another's passwords and parents have total access to their children's devices. If my wife can't look at anything and everything that's on my phone, it's because I must have something to hide. Simply put, same goes for children. If you can't look at every, anything and everything on your kid's phone, it's because they must have something to hide. Otherwise, why do you care? And in healthy relationships, we don't have to hide things. Part of that is fostering open and transparent relationships with your spouse and with your kids. Part of that is manifesting those open relationships by saying, I can know it's on your phone. We learn to sing together rather than letting recorded and amplified music take over our lives and worship. Music and communal singing used to be a regular part of communal life in society. However, because of technology, we can sign singing to only those who are experts. We do this in many other areas of life, but music is a prime example. I often joke that as an adult, I play golf and I run because those are the only sports they let you do and be bad at. But there are things we are meant to do as an expression of community and as an expression of love that require skill, even if we are not the most talented people in the world at them. And singing is one of those things. Singing and music create bonds. They do something in our brains, but only if we sing together. If the family is a place where we learn courage and develop skill, we cannot outsource the primary places we do that to Pandora. That's why we sing here in worship. And that's why we keep children in worship for singing. So we can learn to sing together as a family and as a church not outsourcing our music to the uber-talented, but including all those who can make a joyful noise in our communal choir. Lastly, we show up in person for the big events of life. We learn how to be human by being fully present at our moments of greatest vulnerability. We hope to die in one another's arms. Technology... Ugh. Technology can allow for myriad ways to forge digital connections or maintain connections in a digital space. And that's a good thing. But it will never replace real embodied connection. Real embodied connection can only be created and sustained through showing up in person. 
I want to end this point and the sermon with the way that Crouch ends the book. Because it gets at the heart of why physical connection is so important. Crouch says, long extended quote, One thing we can say for sure is that when we are at our body's very limits, nothing but personal presence will do. A few years ago, I had the great gift of being invited into the bedroom of my friend David Sachs, born in 1968 just like me, but brought to the end of his life by cancer that by the time it was discovered had erupted throughout his body. After a glorious and grace-filled year of life made possible by medical treatment, David's illness outran the drugs. In his last days, he lay on his bed. The body that at once had effortlessly beaten me in game after game of squash was now unbearably thin and weak. David was an internationally celebrated photographer, but he would never take another image. He had sent me countless text messages over the years. I never will have the heart to delete them from my phone. But now he was beyond text messaging. He had created a Facebook group where he and his wife Angie chronicled the story of his cancer diagnosis, treatment, and all the ups and downs that followed. But he would never again update it. But he was still there, still with us, still able just barely to hear us praying and singing, able in moments of lucidity to open his eyes, take in the small group of family and friends gathered around his bed, and know that he was not alone. His brother brought a guitar and we sang several nights in a row Matt Redman's song, 10,000 Reasons. The technology was over. The easy everywhere dream had ended. Now we could only be here, in our own vulnerable bodies, present to the immensely hard reality of a father, friend, son, and husband dying. Over the bed was a framed callig calligraphied rendering of David and Angie's wedding vows. It was one of the hardest places I've ever been. It was one of the most holy places I've ever been. It was one of the best places I've ever been. We are meant for this kind of life together. The kind of life that at the end is completely dependent upon one another. The kind of life that ultimately transcends and does not need the easy solutions of technology because it is caught up in something more true and more lasting than any alchemy our technological world can invent. We are meant to be family, not just marriages bound by vows and the children that come from them, but a wider family that invites others into our lives and even to the threshold of our very last breath to experience vulnerability and grace, sorrow and hope, singing our way homeward. We are meant not just for thin virtual connections, but for visceral, real connections to one another in this fleeting, temporary, and infinitely beautiful and worthwhile life. We are meant to die in one another's arms, surrounded by prayer and song, knowing beyond knowing that we are loved. We are meant for so much more than technology can ever give us. Above all, for the wisdom and courage that it will never give us. We are meant to spur one another along the way to a better life, the life that really is life. Why not begin living that life together now? Let us pray.
God, we know that we were created for more than mere creation can ever offer us. We are created for more than tablets and smartphones. We are created for real relationship with one another. We are created for real relationship with you. So God, break into our lives, break into our worlds. Give us the grace and the strength we need to choose the life that really is life. To have real, intimate, vulnerable, visceral relationships with one another. And to have our family truly be bonded. And as we do, help our families be light unto the world. Not glowing screens, but beacons that witness to the fact that there is another way. There is a better way. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.